It is a privilege to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning as we continue our study in the book of Acts, looking at Acts chapter 20, uh, which can be found on page 929 in, your, in the Bible there in, the, in front of you in the chair um, if you don't have uh, your own copy with you. Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. Says John Maxwell in his book, The 21 Irresistible Laws of Leadership. The Apostle Paul reminds us that Christianity is both taught as we hear God's word week after week and as we study it ourselves, but, it, but it's also caught as we look at the lives of others. In fact, we're going to see that Paul, as he gives a charge to uh, the Ephesians, looks at his own life in ministry uh, as an example of faithfulness to Christ. In fact, he, he says this in several other places. For instance, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 16, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. In 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. To the Philippians, he writes in chapter 3, verse 17, Brothers, join, me, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, in the next chapter in Philippians 4, 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And then the writer to Hebrews writes this uh, in chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Christianity is both caught and taught. Teaching is vital, necessary, foundational, central to the Christian life. Uh, we, we need to be in God's word and hear God's word and study God's word and come under teachers of God's word if we're to grow in our spiritual life. But let me ask you a question. Who has influenced you? Think about who has influenced you most in your Christian life. So just think, think back, maybe it's a, a pastor, maybe it's your mom or your dad, maybe a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a youth pastor, youth worker. Who is it that has influenced you the most in your Christian life? Now, as you're thinking about that person, try to recall the details of even one conversation you've had. You might remember a few statements, a few sentences, a, a key word of advice. And all those things that they told you were important. But when you think about those people that impacted you the most, what you think about is their life. You think about their sincerity. You think about their honesty and their integrity. You think about their humility, how they, they walk faithfully with Christ. You think about their passion and their conviction. You look at their lives, and it matches their words, and so it impacts you deeply. For me, it was a guy named Mike. Uh, 
I didn't grow up knowing the gospel. I, I, I didn't actually come to hear the gospel until I was a teenager. Uh, my mom, who wasn't a believer, liked to listen to Christian radio in the background as white noise. And so when they advertised a camp, she decided to send me, even though she wasn't a believer. And so the second year I went to camp, I came to know Christ. Um, and uh, had a rocky high school, um, kind of one foot in the church, one foot in the world. And God really got a hold of my life when I was 19. And I started attending another church, a little church plant, just a, a little church startup. Um, and when I walked in there the first time, you have to picture this, I was 19 years old. I'm in a black leather jacket. Um, I had a mullet. <laughs> it was the 80s, okay. It was the, by the way, there's a book, and I wish I had bought it. I saw it once, and it had all of the different kind of mullets in the world. And, and one of them I thought was great because it was, it really fit me. I'm Mexican, and it had, it had the Mexican mullet. It called it the Malexican. So, <laughs> but I walk into this church, you know, not having really had a good childhood, good experience, and, and this, this really old guy comes up to me. He was like 39. <laughs> and I, I mean, I looked at him like, man, you're still breathing. And so he comes up to me, and, and he really just, just brings me into his life. He, he, it's a few weeks there, and he says, hey, I lead a Bible study on Wednesday nights. We're learning how to do evangelism and going out and sharing the gospel. Would you like to come? And so I started going to the Bible study, and it wasn't too long before he said, hey, why don't you come early and have dinner with my family? So I'd come early and have dinner, and then he'd say, hey, are you, are you busy? Why don't you stay afterward, and, and we can have coffee together? And coming from a very dysfunctional family, I, I sat there and I watched his family. I watched him just love his wife and show affection to his children. I saw his passion for the Lord. I saw his prayer life, that he was a man of prayer. He woke up every, every morning early because he, he wasn't... Now, here's the thing. He was an elder in the church, but he didn't, he didn't know Greek. He didn't know Hebrew. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't even go to college. He just had his high school diploma, but he loved Jesus and followed Jesus faithfully. And I saw this man. I looked at his Bible, and there wasn't a page that didn't have his own notes in there. From cover to cover. I saw him volunteer time at the homeless shelter. And I, and I looked at his life and his words. God used it to change me. And so the Apostle Paul here, what does this have to do with Acts chapter 20? You see, in, in Acts 20, um, there's, there's, a, there's a change, there's an urgency that comes that you don't really see earlier in the text. Um, so Paul, there's, uh, we, we find that, you know, there's plot after plot to try to kill him, and, and he begins to wonder, will I live, will I die? As he's been traveling through, the Holy Spirit has been telling him, compelling him to go to Jerusalem, but every place he stops, a prophet says, do you know you're going to go to prison, you're going to suffer, you're going to be persecuted? So he doesn't know what's going to happen. And so there's an urgency in Paul that we find here in Acts chapter 20. He travels through Macedonia and Greece, strengthening the churches. Um, he's also taking a collection for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Um, for the Jerusalem church, there was a famine, 
and, and so Paul is about going to all of these Gentile churches and collecting money. In fact, there's an entourage with him, representatives of these churches we see in the beginning of Acts chapter 20, and they're, they're taking a collection so that they can give it to the Jerusalem church. Paul hears of a plan, and so in, as he's about to set sail to Syria, and so he decides to go through Macedonia instead. Um, earlier in this chapter, I'm going to begin in verse 17, but earlier in this chapter, um, there's, a, there's kind of a funny story of uh, Paul in, in Troas, and um, maybe it's fitting in light of first service. Um, you'll see when I say. But Paul is there in Troas. He's there for seven days. And the last days there is on a Sunday night. He's going to be leaving on Monday morning. Now, Sunday was a work day. And so all of the believers, people in the church would have gone to work early in the morning. They would have worked all day, sun up to sundown. And then after sundown, they could come and gather together as the church. And Paul began to preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. It's about midnight. And this young guy, Eutychus, in fact, he's probably a kid. The word that they use there really is used like in pre-adolescence, like 8 to 14. Eutychus is sitting at a windowsill. They're in a third-story room. And he's sitting at a windowsill. And we don't know the flames of the, of the candles or what it was, but he falls asleep. Except, unfortunately, he falls backwards. Three stories, lands on the ground, he's dead. So Paul rushes down there, grabs him, kind of like Elijah, grabs him, lays on him, holds him in his hand, and he comes back to life. God brings him back to life through Paul. And so you would think, now that'd be pretty amazing. Could you imagine I'm up here preaching, somebody drops dead, I raise him back to life, and then we go back to the sermon? <laughs> but that's exactly what Paul does. He, he comes back up, he's like, now where was I? You'd think they'd be talking about this, you know, Eutychus. Nope. And, and so they have communion, and then Paul continues to teach them till sunrise. And then he moves on. And, and so what we find, he's, he's going on, and he decides to, he, not to stop at Ephesus, but to go on and stop at Miletus. Uh, but he wants to encourage the Ephesian elders. He wants to encourage the church. And so we find here in verse 17 that he calls the elders of the church. And so we're going to walk through this passage, and there are five characteristics I want us to see of an influential leader. Now, Paul is writing to the elders, the overseers of the church, the church leaders who are responsible. And, and there's a sense in which Paul is passing on the baton, he knows he's not long in this life. He doesn't know how long yet, but he knows that he's not long in this life. And so he's passing it on to the elders in the church. And so he calls for the Ephesian elders to come down these 30 miles and to meet him at Miletus. And he wants to give them one last charge, one last challenge. And in this, there, there's five movements in this, in this message of Paul. There's five characteristics that we find of an influential leader. So look with me as I read the passages um, together with us. So in, in verses 17 through 21, let me read it. We're going to see, in the, first of all, an influential leader has a heart of service. 
It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. An influential leader has a heart of service. Notice first his service is towards God. He says, serving the Lord in verse, uh, verse 17, or verse 19. Serving the Lord. Paul's ministry is first of all towards God. He realizes that, that, that his calling is from God, and at the end of the day, the only one he needs to be worried about is if God's pleased with him. Not how people received him, not anything else that happened. And so his ministry is to God, he says, with all humility and tears and trials. Paul's life wasn't an easy life. He, he tells us some of the things that he's gone through. And he reminds us that it, his calling and his confidence are in God. And so he says he, he serves the Lord and his heart's in it. You know, Paul wasn't a weepy man, but his, he, his heart was in the ministry. And so often his heart broke at the situations that he saw people in. But then he also serves the church. He says he served the Lord. He says, but in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. See, Paul, his ministry was to share the word of God. In season and out of season. And so what he says here is, I didn't only tell you the things that you wanted to hear. I told you the things that you needed to hear. I told you the things that, uh, that you needed to hear. And it, and it may be, Paul's saying, it may be that sometimes I stepped on your toes. But if I stepped on your toes, maybe that's God telling you you need to move your feet. And so Paul here, um, he, he's willing to be bold and courageous in standing up for truth. Now, we need to, as we hear this, um, there's, there's a danger that we can get in because the Bible says speak the truth in love. And those aren't in opposition to one another. Sometimes we think we speak the truth, but we're not loving. Sometimes we're loving, but then we fail to speak the truth, and God calls us to do both. And so there are two ditches that we can fall in. One is we can speak the truth without love. And, and maybe you know people like that. Um, you know, there are some people who, who are unnecessarily abrasive or combative or argumentative. Uh, I remember my dad, he was a, a new Christian, a young Christian, and a guy at his work was a believer. Doesn't know my dad, and he walks up to him, and he, and he just looks at him, and he goes, you're going to hell. Okay. Back away slowly. But, but you know those people where they, they feel like I'm not being faithful unless I've offended you. But, but there's another ditch that you can fall in on the other side. You can be so loving that you fail to speak the truth. And in our culture today that's increasingly hostile to, 
to Christianity and, and increasingly hypersensitive to anything that people disagree with, there's a, there's a tendency for us to want to be liked and accepted and, and not looked down upon, and so we remain silent. But Paul wasn't like that. He was winsome and articulate, but he was bold and he was clear. And he didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. He not only served God and people, but he also served the lost. He shared the gospel with testifying both the Jew and the Greek of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So an influential leader has a heart of service, but secondly, we see an influential leader also has a heart of sacrifice, verses 22 through 27. It says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. An influential leader has a heart of sacrifice. The Holy Spirit told him to go to Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit also told him he was going to go to prison and be, to be afflicted. He was, he was going to suffer. God doesn't just call us to ministries that are safe and easy. There are times when God calls us, but in the calling is a risk. And, but Paul, you see, when he says something here that's, that's instructive. See, Paul's goal in life wasn't self-preservation. Um, he loved his life. Don't, don't misunderstand what he says here. He loved life. Notice what he, but he says something that we, we need to put in perspective. He says, I do not count, verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now, it sounds like he's might saying, ah, my life, it's no big deal, I don't care. No, Paul loves life, but he loves Jesus more. And God had a calling on his life. He had placed a ministry on his life to proclaim the gospel near and far. And Paul says that I love Jesus more than I love my life. And my goal in life is to fulfill the purpose that God has given me. Regardless of what happens. So Paul's goal in life wasn't self-preservation, but he had perspective. He knew that this life wasn't the end. And so he, he viewed it as a race. He's running this race and he wants to finish his race and receive the prize. The prize at the end, not the ease and comfort along the way. Now he says something here in regards to that calling. Um, in verse, in verse um, four, uh, th 26, in verse 26, he says something that's, that's kind of hard for us. He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, that harkens back to an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel chapter 33. In Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel talks about a watchman. 
And this is the imagery. There's a watchman on the tower. There was, there's a man whose responsibility was to stand on a high tower and just look out in the horizon. And he was to look out to see if the enemy was approaching. So he would look and see if the enemy was approaching and coming. And then he would shout a warning to the people. Now, if he saw the enemy coming and he, he gave a warning, but the people disregarded him, then he was innocent and, and the army came and those people died. That watchman was innocent because he gave the warning even though the people didn't hear. But Ezekiel writes that if the watchman looks out in the horizon and sees the enemy and he doesn't say anything and the enemy comes and those people die... He says the blood is on the watchman's hand because he knew what to say, but he didn't say it. And so Paul here says that he wants to complete his ministry and he'll say everything that they need to hear. He won't shrink away from it so that he can stand before God and say that he's done everything that God's called him to do. Well, Paul is looking back on his own life and giving himself as an example to the Ephesian elders, and now he looks at, at the present situation and the future. And so we see here a third characteristic of an influential leader in verses 28 through 32, and that is an influential leader has a heart of protection. Look at verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And an, influ an influential leader has a heart of protection. Um, he, he says in verse 28, pay careful attention. He says, guard yourselves. Now notice he says, first of all, pay attention to yourselves. Guard yourselves. You see, what Paul is saying is that as a leader, it starts in your own heart. Now, Paul says to them, he says, know well the condition of your heart. Know what's going on. See your temptations. See your struggles. Be, be humble before others. And so as a Christian leader, he tells them to know the condition of their hearts. Uh, in Proverbs, it says this. It says, guard your hearts, for from it flow the wellspring of, of life. Everything about you, everything that you do flows from your heart. So how's your heart? How's your heart? Uh, do you find yourself lukewarm, or are you passionate for Christ? Are you reading God's word and meditating on it and allowing it to soak in and impact you? And, and you read it with a hunger, with a desire to know God. Are you spending time in prayer, drawing near to God? Are you in fellowship with other believers that they can speak into your life and you can speak into theirs? Paul talks to these leaders and he says, know your heart. 
Before you can help somebody else, you need to make sure that you're in a place where God can use you. I was reminded this week of something that I've heard said often, and that is you can't call somebody else to a higher level of commitment than you're living yourself. Very rarely will somebody following you go further than you as you're their example. And so Paul here tells the the elders of the Ephesian church and, and leaders throughout the ages and us today, how's your heart? He says, guard your heart. And then he says, guard the flock. Pay close and careful attention to all of the flock. And he gives reasons why. Um, first of all, he says that the, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Literally, that's what it says. He says, he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. The word there, care for, is translated in other, in other versions as shepherd. And it's the word that we get pastor from. Pastor comes from the Latin pastore, it's also uh, French, and it, it just means to shepherd. And so an elder is an overseer. An overseer carries the idea of, of guarding, of watching, of, of knowing the condition of the flock, knowing where the struggles are, knowing where the hurts are. So, so an elder is an overseer, is a, is a shepherd. And so he says, shepherd the people of God. Pastor them. He says that the church is precious to God. He says, uh, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God gave the blood of his own son to purchase you and me from our sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross and the church is precious to God. It cost the life of his son. You know, I, we think about, you know, how much Jesus loves us and... You know, people often say, well, if it, if it was just you, you know, Jesus would die just for you. And in some ways, that's kind of shocking because what that tells me that I'm so much of a sinner that if I was the only human being, God would still have to die on the cross. But that's how much he loves you and me, and the church is precious. He says there are wolves from without and wolves from within. He says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. There is a constant threat of danger in the world that we live in. We're constantly being pulled away, bombarded with messages that contradict the gospel. And so there's a danger that Paul tells the leaders to guard the church because there's wolves that are coming in from the outside. But he also says there's wolves that come from within. He says, even among the church that there are sheep and wolves clothing who are there with the wrong motive, with the wrong purpose to lead people astray. And so he tells the elders to guard the people. He tells them to be alert. Don't be paranoid, but don't let your guard down. Be aware that the dangers are real. But he also reminds them of where, where strength comes from. Because he, at the end of this section, in verse 32, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. See, what he says here is this. He commends him to God and the word, and it's, it's always word and spirit. Those are two aspects. You know, God, the Holy Spirit, working through the word to encourage and build us up and give us strength. And he says this because we are weak. He, he reminds us that the strength doesn't reside within us. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not a matter of just, you know, we're going to grit our teeth and push through. What, what he says is, is that, that we need the strength of God in order to do the things of God for the glory of God. There's two final characteristics I'll mention in 33 to 35, we see an influential leader has a heart of generosity. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so what we find here is an influential leader has a heart of generosity. He says, I, I didn't covet anyone's silver or gold or apparel. The opposite of, of coveting is generosity. When you covet, you want something that you don't have. And you become jealous and envious. And you, you look at them and say, well, why do they have a nicer car than me? Why do they have a nicer house than me? Why is their paycheck bigger than mine? And so you, you can begin to look around and compare yourselves to other people. And Paul says, no. The Christian life is a life of generosity, of contentment with what you have. And generosity is the opposite of coveting. In Philippians, Paul says this, I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And that's where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says, I, I know when I've had plenty and when I've been struggling, and I, I know the secret is being content in Jesus. He also says he works for, work for what you have. He tells them to look at his example. Paul could have taken donations, but he didn't. He was a tent maker so that he could set an example for those who would follow him. He says, work, help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And I, I've all, I've, I think I've misunderstood this, this passage for most of my Christian life because it says, um, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I always thought it meant, well, it's more blessed to be the one giving than the one who's the recipient of your generosity. But that isn't what is being said here. What's, now, keep in mind, everything that you have is a gift from God. And, and sometimes we don't recognize that. Uh, the fact that I could get up this morning was because of God's grace. The fact that I have the energy and the strength to go to work is because of God's goodness in my life. The fact that God has given me a mind to think and a hand to create things, the ability to earn money, all of those are gifts from God. So everything that I have, I've received as a gift. But what Paul says is this, is not only can you receive gifts from God, but you can be a conduit of God's grace. So, so God gives to you so that you can give to others. And so he says, you know, yes, it's blessed when you receive from God. 
But it's more blessed when you receive from God and then you're the conduit of his blessing to give to somebody else. And so the heart of a leader, of a godly leader, is generosity. But lastly, we see a heart of a leader is a heart of love. Verses 36 through 38. It says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, and they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. One of the things that strikes me with Paul, and it comes out here, is he loved people. He loved people. He didn't just act like he loved people. He loved people. In fact, to the Thessalonians, he would say, having thus a fond affection for you, I desire to impart to you not only the gospel, but my very life as well, because you have become so dear to me. Paul loved people. He didn't just act like he loved people. You know, and there's, there's a couple wrong ideas, and I want to address them. Because there's a difference between loving somebody and acting like you love somebody because God wants you to love people from the heart. Maybe you've heard this saying. Maybe you've said it. Um, well, just fake it till you make it. You ever hear that? That's not a biblical idea. Just, just fake it till you make it. Because what it's assuming is this, is if you change the outside, that somehow, eventually, if you change the outside, eventually that's going to penetrate and change your heart. But you see, that isn't how Christianity works, because what God does is he changes our heart, and it works from the inside out. And so often when we try to fake it till we make it, well, we we see a whole group of people in the New Testament that do that. They're called the Pharisees. Uh, but there's another idea, and maybe you've, um, you've, you've heard this one too. And, and, and again, if I'm stepping on toes, well, move your feet. Um, so, you know, the other one says, well, you know, I love the person, but I don't have to like them. Really? Well, Paul and and Jesus and the Bible tell us that we love people from the heart. And there's a genuineness and sincerity that comes from the heart. And so that the love that we have for people isn't just acting like it. And it doesn't mean we have to like everything about the person or what they've done. But but when we find ourselves not loving people, we need to pray to God and say, God, change my heart. Change my heart so that I can love how you love. Because you call me to love people from the heart, not just to fake it till I make it, and not just to put up with people even though I really don't love them. Let me share with you a a story. Um, Some of you are familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom, um, she and her family lived during, um, during the time of World War II, and the Nazis were um, gathering up Jewish people and taking them to concentration camps, and their family was, was about protecting people from being captured by the Nazis. Well, towards the end of the war, Corey's uh, family and, and she get captured. 
And uh, her father, very shortly after being captured and sent to prison, dies in prison. Um, she and her sit, uh, sister uh, get thrown in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And while she was there in the concentration camp, she watched her sister wither away and die. Through uh, just a series of providential circumstances, she was released um, and didn't die there in the concentration camp. And following World War II, she went about preaching the gospel and, and talking about reconciliation to the very people who had been responsible for the atrocities. But she writes this, it was a church service in Munich when I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room in the processing center at Ravensbrück. So she looks out in the congregation, she looks out in the audience, and she sees the man who stood there at the gate that ushered her into the concentration camp. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein. To think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. She goes on, I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. And then she says, as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love himself. We see in Paul this love for others, and, and there are people in our lives where we go, God, I can't love them but give me your grace and your strength. Remember what Paul says. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong because it's not his power, it's the power of Jesus working in him and through him. And so we see Paul, his, his love for people, that, that they weren't his projects. They weren't just his, his ministry responsibilities. These were people that he held in his heart. Some of us will never have leadership positions in the church, but we're all leaders. We all lead people. People look at your life. They know that you're a Christ follower. 
They hear how you talk. They see how you respond to stress. They, they, they watch you. They learn from you. Your children learn from you. And so all of us are, we may not realize it, but all of us have a sphere of influence of people who are watching our lives and listening to our words. And to the degree they match up is the degree of influence and impact that we often have. And so although this is charged to the elders of the church and the leaders throughout the ages, it's for you and for me. God wants us to be a person of influence. And so we serve others and we sacrifice. We're willing to put ourselves out for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. We, we protect others. We care for them and watch over them, knowing that the dangers are real. We give generos generously and sacrificially, not just from the excess of what we have, but from what's central. And above all, we love others. And when we do that, we are people of influence. Will you join me as I close this in prayer?